You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with E.C. Myers. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. Woohoo! Yes, he is. <laughs> He's back. And you are listening to a special, very special showcase episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. That's right. And 20 Minutes With is uh, when Dave and I have the opportunity to put up our feet, knock back a few vials of poison, and share the icy <laughs> breeze with a writer <laughs> who has a name that people actually care about. <laughs> And and uh, what is the what is the poison du jour, Brian? Are we are we going classical and going hemlock or or what exactly? No, I was thinking iocane. Iocane powder, yeah. yes, from yeah. Australia, yes, absolutely, massive, Tasteless, massive, geek, odorless, geek reference there. Well done, sir, <laughs> and welcome back. It's Thank good to you. have you in the chair. If it feels funny, that's because Ryan Stevenson's ass has been sitting in that chair, and he might have shaped it out of out of whack for you. But just well, it's nice and warm. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm so glad to have you back, my friend. And let me let's celebrate your return with an introduction for an awesome guest host, shall we? Let's. I, I'm I'm excited. I that. have no doubt that you are. So am yes. I, um, Brian. Something funky here. When when our minions started first started returning with data on our guest host. Um, I, I was kind of afraid that they were mixing up their reports, combining data from from multiple subjects rather than one individual. <laughs> uh, but, but then I, I read his website bio and it all became clear. Uh, in that bio, he speaks of being assembled in the U.S. from Korean and German parts. And, and that combination of frenetic passion, thoughtful insight, and incisive analytic precision resolved the confused tangle of input into a single remarkable individual. Our guest host was raised by a single mother who was also, by the way, a fabulous cook. He was, by all accounts, an active, if reckless, child, uh, narrowly dodging certain death on numerous occasions. Uh, interestingly, Specfic was not his first literary love. Uh, mysteries and crime drama in the form of the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Sherlock Holmes, and Agatha Christie were where he first cut his literary teeth. Uh, uh, and he developed a ravenous and indiscriminate appetite, uh, devouring whatever books he could lay his hands on, including his older sisters, Sweet Valley High, The Babysitter's Club, Judy Bloom texts, all of this stuff. Intended audiences meant nothing to him. He'd read it whether it was meant for boys, girls, or adults. And at 13, Brian, this guy was reading Ed McBain's 87th Precinct novels, and... Wow. One shudders to imagine the impact those tales of drug pushers and prostitutes <laughs> had on his impressionable psyche. I mean, you know, he could end up writing stories about horny zombies, for God's sake. Uh, well, now, <laughs> you, you may be wondering uh, what it is that focused all of this frothing literary passion into science fiction. Was it, was it Star Trek? Was it Star Wars or Bradbury, Asimov, Clark? No. The first science fiction text that registered in our guest host's literature-addled brain was Interstellar Pig by William Sleater. 
And, and so profoundly did this text rock our guest host's world that it led to a lifetime of reading and writing science fiction and fantasy. Now, he was also a film and television junkie, and so it should come as no surprise that his first serious attempts at writing were all screenplays. Uh, and to this day, his creative process is largely visual. Uh, now, if we skip ahead a few years, we find our guest host with a degree in visual arts and a few years of corporate servitude as a technical writer, Wall Street software developer, and eventually uh, cable television production. Uh, he'd been writing and submitting his fiction with little success, and, and the cold shadow of despair began to creep across his heart. But then, in 2005, he was accepted to the Clarion West Writers' Workshop, and his life was transformed. In those six weeks of intense workshopping, he learned more than he had learned in the previous five years from science fiction greats like Octavia E. Butler and Connie Willis. Now, finally, he sold a story, an event that was commemorated by him and his then-girlfriend, now wife, feasting at a restaurant that cost more than the money he made on the sale itself, where his beloved presented him with a paper hat she'd folded, pronouncing him a published author and decorated with encouraging words and drawings. Uh, his stories continued to sell and receive recognition, including a romantic short story featuring horny zombies <laughs> <laughs> titled In the Closet, which, see what I did there? It was foreshadowing. That's what that, that was. That was awesome. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> which received an honorable mention in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror 2008. Also, his nostalgic short story about horny cavemen, I'm sensing a trend here, My Father's Eyes also got an honorable mention in the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 3, and he was a finalist in L. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future contest. His first novel, Fair Coin, published by Pyre Books, was listed on io9.com with the following text. Warning, this book is pure, awesome crack. Which, really, on io9, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Uh, the process of getting fair coin to bookstores was fairly conventional, a saga eight years in the making. Uh, but while all that was coming together, he got bored and wrote three more novels. The sequel to Fair Coin, called Quantum Coin, also from Pyre Books, released last October. And two standalones that hopefully we'll hear more about someday. Uh, he's a proud member of the Altered Fluid Writing Group and is a staunch advocate of the power of collaborative effort and peer review to improve and refine a writer's creations, which is one of the reasons we love him so much. And Brian? Yes. His melee weapon of choice is the sword, but not just any sword, my friend. Our guest host would wield in battle none other than the Sword of Omens. From oh, Thundercats. Boy. Yes. <laughs> Which not only establishes his geek cred, but also ensures his eternal membership at the round table, seated, I'm assuming, next to you, Brian. Absolutely. <laughs> Dear friends, please join us uh, in welcoming to the big chair, all the way from the city of brotherly love, author of Fair Coin and Quantum Coin, Eugene Myers. Eugene, thank you so much, sir, for making the time to, to share your thoughts and insights with us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that tremendous introduction, uh, which <laughs> has 
deeply embarrassed me and is also a cautionary tale against uh, about the internet, uh, <laughs> where they really where you know they say everything on the internet is there forever, and I think you've just proved it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Now, was did I did I miss any? Uh, were, were there any egregious errors in there, Eugene, or was that I all? F- I feel like I'm in an episode of uh, This Is Your Life. Uh, <laughs> only you've made my life sound so much cooler than it felt as I was living it. <laughs> well, that's that's the benefit of history, man. Uh, we can wash <laughs> away all of those awkward bumps and bruises and make it all shine bright and pretty. So, well, cool. Well, let's start our, our 20 minutes with, with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start our, our clock here uh, and get that bad boy rolling. And let's roll into 20 minutes with Eugene Myers. Um, Eugene, you, you strike me as a writer who follows their passions and, and writes about things that interest them. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about your choice uh, to write a YA novel, not, not and, and I don't mean that as a slam to YA, but but it's it's definitely a distinctive choice as opposed to writing for a, uh, an adult audience. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious, what led you to write a tale for for younger audiences? Well, um, so as you as you mentioned, I'm in Altered Fluid, which is a writing group in New York, um, and it turned out that uh, a good majority of the stories that I was turning in, I was writing science fiction, fantasy, you know, for adult audiences. Um, a good portion of the stories that I was turning in, um, a lot of the feedback that I was getting uh, from my fellow members was that it was it was YA. It sounded YA. So, for instance, I wrote a story about um, body swapping. Uh, guy, this guy goes to a body swapping party, gets stuck in somebody else's body, um, goes home drunk, not realizing that he's not in his own body, and... Um, <laughs> And through, you know, and then in the course of trying to, you know, get back into his own body, like his sister's helping him, there's a little bit of a hint of incest because she kind of likes the new body that he's in. And is it really incest because, you know, their bodies aren't physically related? Um, I somehow wrote a story about, uh, you know, sex parties, body swapping and incest, and it sounded YA. (laughs) Um, Dude, that's bad skills, man. Holy crap. (laughs) I mean, given given the YA market today, that that may actually make a terrific YA novel. But um, but the criticism was, you know, I'm I'm trying to write a dark story. I'm trying to write an edgy story, and um, the the voice was kind of rebelling against the the subject matter. Um, and while I was at Claren West, um, I guess this was probably something that I was that was evolving even while I was there. Uh, my fifth week instructor was Gordon Van Gelder from FNSF. Okay. And, and you know, at Claren West, we get these one-on-one sessions about half an hour with each of the instructors. Um, and during the course of that, he mentioned to me, uh, kind of apologetically, you know, if it's okay for me to say this, you have a really strong YA voice. Um, and I find it interesting now that, that this seemed like something that he thought I might take offense at, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really great for him to, to kind of highlight from, from what he'd write of my work, what my strengths were or what he thought, you know, needed, needed work depending on where I wanted my career to go. Back in 2005, um, the YA market really hadn't, had just started to, to, to come alive. So yeah. he, he might've been afraid he was like pigeoning, pigeonholing you into, into a, a niche market that you'd never fight your way out of or something. Well, and, and as far as short stories go, there really are no dedicated young adult short story markets. That's true. Um, there's, the, there's the occasional anthology. There's some magazines, uh, some online magazines occasionally. Um, but it's not really a, a viable you know, career choice if you want to write short fiction and you want to write young adults. 
But apparently that's that's something that's almost instinctive in you. I mean, even back at Clarion, there there were people recognizing that, you know, your authorial voice has that uh, uh, appeal to that younger audience. Where, where do you think that comes from? Um, I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, the, the typical answer from a lot of authors is, oh, well, you know, I actually am 13, <laughs> 13, 13 years old. Like my mindset is 13 years old, 14, you know, um, it could be from the types of books that I that I liked reading as a kid, um, you know. So, so having that in the back of my head that that this was a, a possible strength of mine. I also had a short story. I had, I had an idea for um, the story that became Fair Coin. I was telling this to my to my girlfriend at the time, and she was saying, "Well, that sounds like a great YA book. You should write it." And so she recommended all these YA books to me to read because it had been years since I actually read it. And I found that I that they really spoke to me, like. You know, I, I really loved what I was reading and decided that I really wanted to write it. Um, and it became much more than research. I mean, right now, probably it's about 90% of, of what I read, um, given, given the choice. And, uh, and it was once I stopped sort of fighting against my natural voice and using it as a strength that, that I think that I was able to, to kind of channel that. That's awesome. Well, and, and, and Fair Coin, and I'm, I'm a, I haven't read Quantum Coin. Um, but, uh, but they're, they're distinguishing themselves as, as I don't know what mature YA or, or honest or authentic YA. I mean, there's your opening scene, kid comes home, his mom's tried to commit suicide. That's kind of hard hitting for, for, for your usual, I think what people conceive of as YA fair. I mean, you're not pulling any punches in these stories. No. And, and you shouldn't. I mean, I think that, that, uh, young adult fiction can be as, mature, dark, edgy as anything being published in, in the adult arena. Um, and sure. I think that's something that a lot of people are surprised by when they start reading YA. Um, you know, you don't have to pull your punches, you don't have to talk down, you don't have to self-edit yourself, except in certain areas of language and some sexual situations. You know, really the only thing you have to be aware of is that you're, you may be limiting your market. You know, you might, your book might get banned by a library <laughs> or, you know, a school or something like that. Which is um, only good PR, really. <laughs> right. Right. You know, in uh, in teaching, it seems to me a lot of the books that we come across lately that that are geared toward young adults, it almost seems like they tend to be more visceral than a lot of the stuff that's out there for adults. Do you find that to be the case? I certainly think on an emotional level um, that that's true. Uh, I mean, there are definitely there's some pretty violent books out there. I mean, you think about The Hunger Games, and, and, which is sort of the, the quintessential example. A lot of, a lot of uh, parents who are considering picking up my books for their kids will ask, you know, is, this, is there anything too dark for them? Is it too mature? Um, and I'll usually ask, well, have they read Hunger Games? And typically the answer is yes. And then I say, there's, there's nothing in my book that, that will shock them, you know, that they're, they're totally fine. I think that on an emotional level, you, you, the, the protagonists feel things much more, much strong, stronger than, you know, an adult probably would um, reading an adult, adult science fiction or fantasy story. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. You, uh, you also, you mentioned that you, you know, given the preference, you'd almost rather read young adult fiction. What is it about it that attracts you to it as a reader? As a reader, the young adult Young adult fiction, especially, I think, a lot of the science fiction and the fantasy, um, you get the same amount of world building that you would in an adult novel in, like, a quarter of the pages. 
you know, they, they don't, they don't beat around the bush. They get straight to the point. You buy into the, into the world. Um, and then you're off. And the thing that interests me personally, most about story, um, are character is character. Um, so I want to just kind of buy into whatever is happening and just follow that character on their journey. Um, and a lot of adult novels are sort of, I, I won't say meandering, but they, they take their time to build the, the world. And you right. might get chapter after chapter after chapter that's really just, you know, describing the city, you know, before you even really get to what the problem is and what the, and, and who the characters are. That's a good point. I hadn't even considered yeah. that, but, but yeah. yeah, that makes perfect sense that, that YA books would be a, a faster hit into the actual grist of the story. Uh, whereas George R. R. Martin can can take three chapters and and describe Winterfell or whatever, and and the background and heritage. That's awesome. That's yeah. Cool. And and there are definitely there are there are large you know heavy doorstopper YA books. Um, they seem to be getting getting longer and longer. I think Harry Potter helped to kind of pave the way for that, as, <laughs> as it did with a lot of a lot of young adult publishing. But uh, typically, I can read you know ten YA books in the amount of time it would take me to read say the the name of the wind you know <laughs> right, right 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 we'll be back with more of our conversation with ec myers after this brief promotional break storytelling has been a part of our lives since the dawn of civilization but to this day authors and readers still discuss and debate the perfect blend of character plot and setting to craft a great story now you can be a part of that discussion Geek and Sundry presents a remarkable monthly series titled The Storyboard. Hosted by Patrick Rothfuss, author of The Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear, each episode is a live panel discussion on the very essence of the writer's craft. Gathering a different constellation of stellar authors for each panel, The Storyboard offers up a live discussion that is vibrant, diverse, and sometimes contentious but always relevant to today's dynamic world of storytelling. The storyboard discussions occur on the first Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. Pacific time on Google Hangouts. Just subscribe to the Geek & Sundry YouTube channel or add Geek & Sundry on Google Plus to receive notifications. The Storyboard, continuing the quest for how to tell a great story. Now, let's get back to the conversation with E.C. Myers. Your, your Clarion West experience, I want to I talk a little bit about that. Um, it, it, it seems like uh, that event uh, was, was like a lightning bolt. And, and in, in the various documents that I've, that I've read and the interviews that I listened to, it, it sounds like it was a dramatic shift. And, and you know, almost immediately you could see what you were doing wrong and now you can do it right. And then things started selling and yada, yada. And I was wondering if, if you could recall some of the, the, the habits and processes that you were doing before the Clarion West experience that you then modified or, or abandoned afterwards. And, and what, what new processes did you integrate into your, into your craft that, that, that made your stories so so much tighter and more saleable. Oh, definitely. Um, when I started out writing uh, short stories, first of all, the short stories were, were much longer. I had no sense of pacing. You know, I would I would regularly turn out. I think my first short story, you know, in quotation marks, was about twenty two thousand words, completely unsellable. <laughs> um, 
you know, and I would typically turn in stories that were, you know, 13,000, 14,000 words, even at the workshop. And I, I got some crap for that um, because, you know, everybody at the at the workshop had to read two or three stories a day. And if one of those stories was a novella, you know, <laughs> they were not happy. They were not happy about it. So, um, But my process when I was first starting out pretty much just on my own and writing based off of, you know, um, books about writing and my my own instincts um, I would I would write a story and however long that would take and then I would I would revise it and I would send it to some friends for feedback and the type of feedback that I would get would usually be this is awesome or well pretty much pretty much uh, most of my friends would just say that that they liked it you know and and they couldn't really give me any any suggestions on how to fix it or if it needed fixing. Um, you could just get a response of like, I liked it or I didn't like it. Um, and most of the time my friends would say that they liked it. Um, but during the course of revision, so let's say that I, I revised it, you know, once, one or two times. During that entire process, I was only working on that one story. Um, and that could take up to a month of me only having, you know, put in any effort on one story. And the rest of the time I was probably watching TV or playing video games. Um, having felt that I had done, you know, I'd been productive. And then, of course... a writer, yes. Right. And then when I felt that the story was ready, uh, or I thought the story was ready, I would start submitting it to markets and then start the next story and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, that was not really the, the best way to produce a lot of stories in a, short, in, in a short period of time. It wasn't really the best way to grow because I was writing fewer stories and writing fewer words you know, ultimately. So, so Clarion West, um, just to describe for, for people who, who aren't really familiar with the, the workshop, you've got about 18 students and uh, each of them is writing a new story every week and every day you're critiquing two or three stories. Um, and during the course of this, during the course of reading all those stories and writing your critiques and, and meeting to talk about them, you're also writing your story. So there isn't a lot of free time. You know, you pretty much have to, to focus and, and just get all the work done. And my writing process really did not fit with this um, this environment. And uh, typically, before the, the workshop, I wait to start a story until I felt ready, you know, to write it. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't outline typically, but I jot down ideas and I think about stories a lot. And then when I start to feel, when it starts to almost write itself in my head, then I feel it's time to start, you know, actually writing it and seeing where I, where it goes. Clarion West. You're lucky if you have time to even come up with an idea. I mean, I, I think my first, you know, I, I came there with my notebook. You're not supposed to bring trunk stories to work on. Um, I came there with a notebook of story ideas that I'd had, you know, in the, in the years preceding the workshop. And I think I used maybe maybe one or two of them. Um, pretty much everything I worked on while I was there was something that had germinated, you know, at the workshop. And I pretty much didn't have the time to, to, to think about the story enough to see if it would work. I just had to start writing. Um, and and that was great um, because Why? Yeah. well I, yeah I mean I was discovering I was you know it could end up being a waste of time in, in some sense and that the story might not work at the end but through the course of writing it I was discovering the story I was it was kind of opening myself to to the organic process of of letting these ideas in and I didn't I didn't have to I didn't have to wait for the perfect moment just to, to start it you know I mean I had to turn out a story every week right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, similarly, I would typically never have showed a story to anybody in its rawest form before the workshop. But again, that's not a luxury. You're sending people first drafts or half-formed drafts, 
you know, sure. um, with like things filled in, like, you know, insert uh, thrilling action sequence here, you know, <laughs> or, or the typical, the clarion thing is, and then they all died, you know, when you don't, you don't know how the to end. resolve your story. Um, so it was actually really freeing because the thing that I got from Clarion West in that, in that regard is to not be afraid to take chances and to not just, to not just not be afraid to fail, but to try to fail. Um, because it's by failing that you, that you learn and you grow as a writer. Wow. That's that. And I think that's, yeah. that's probably the biggest lesson. Most, I certainly, I need to learn and, and most new writers to their craft need to learn is to actually attempt a failure to understand mm -hmm. that failure and then revise that. That's, that's, that yeah. would be a massive breakthrough. Yeah. And on some level to sort of distance yourself from the work such that you're, you're not so, attached to it. I mean, one of the earlier things you have to learn, I think, when you're revising is sometimes you just have to scrap the story or you have to scrap a scene or whatever and start over again. And there was one story at Clarion West that I worked on, and I think I'd been working all day on this, and I had maybe seven or 8,000 words, and it was due the next day. And I went to dinner, and I was you know, hanging out with everybody, and I realized after dinner that the story was completely wrong. And I had to start it over again, you know, at 7 p.m. or something and work all night in order to turn, turn in something, um, you know. And, and to have that, to both have that perspective to look at and say, like, this, this isn't working. Um, and then to also, you know, be able to just start over again. Um, it hurts, you know. It, I still don't like to throw anything away. I, you know, <laughs> I try to delete a scene or delete a chapter or whatever. Like, it goes into a file. Everything that I've written is saved somewhere. Uh, try not to start over again from scratch if I can help it, but sometimes you you have to. Do you refer back to those those deleted? I was just going to ask that, yeah, because that's that's my biggest thing is you know I put so many things away. Oh, I'll I'll look at this later and oh this is a great scene. I'm going to come back to it later, and I don't think I've ever gone back to any piece of it. Yeah, pretty pretty much never. I mean, I think that that psychologically, it helps you to throw it away if you know that it's not really gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, anything that I would have saved, um, maybe maybe the the most I would save is a line of dialogue or a particularly nice description of the scene or something like that. Um, but those things I would remember anyway, yeah. without having to go without having to go back and open it up. And and by the time I'm done revising a, a story or a novel uh, or a chapter. It's gone through so many versions, I wouldn't even be able to figure out, like, you know, what I had written when and which file it was in and, and all those things. Like, it's just, you know, it's it's gone. So, sure. is there some... <laughs> I don't want to read it. I mean, I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> the important <laughs> stuff will stay with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to steer in just a little bit of a different direction, one of the things that, that I've seen um, with some people in my writer's group, we had somebody come in with a, a short, short piece of fiction and reading through some of yours, um, you do it really well. And it's one of those things that it's very easy to do poorly. And so what, if, if you could kind of go through for us parts of the craft um, in a, in a flash fiction or just a short piece, do you really just kind of toss away and what parts do you think you really need to focus on in order to, to create a story that, you know, that um, is going to read, that's, that's going to come across to people? Mm. Uh, well, it's been a real long time since I wrote, since I wrote any flash, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, you, you know, you have a word, you have a word limit. So for a flash story, whether it's 100 words or 500 words or 1,000, um, you have to be really economical. Um, 
And and I think that that you know whether even if you have eighty thousand words to play with, I think on on some level being economical um, is is all to the good anyway. Certainly in YA, um, you know, being more concise, being being tighter with your writing. Um, but it's really about looking at uh, at least the way that I approach writing flash fiction. Um, it's more about looking at every word and whether a different word would carry the weight of more words. Sure. You know, um, and just, and and some of it is also things like dropping dialogue tags. Um, You know, if you can set up the characters, um, I guess you wouldn't really have that many characters in a Flash story, but if you can set up the characters such that it's clearer who is speaking without saying, you know, Brian said and Dave said, Mm -hmm. um, then you can cut down a lot of words because, you know, you throw those in almost without thinking about it and people read them without thinking about it. Right, but they count. Your word counts, so yeah. Yeah. And you said that you you don't you don't write very much of that anymore. Do you think that there's value in uh, in going into flash fiction for a while, or or is that something that is better left to sort of exercise? You know, I think so. I think I think it really helped me um, get a handle on on like I said, telling a tighter story because my, my stories were really long when I started out. Now I can actually, if I need to turn in a 4,000 word story or 5,000 word story or, you know, 7,500 or whatever, whatever your word limit is. Um, the, uh, the other great thing about flash fiction is it, you know, a lot of the stories that I, that I came up with, I think the, the most, most of my flash stories were generated from, I think it was a daily challenge. Um, so for a month, uh, somebody would post a picture or, you know, a word or something, and mm-hmm. we would all write, you know, flash stories that kind of dealt with it in some way. And it was completely creatively open to, to whatever, you know, images resonated with you or wherever you wanted to take it. But because it's 500 words and it didn't typically take very long, and you're kind of just dashing it off really, um, you know, until you revise it, the, there's, there's much less sort of attachment to it you know it's 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 entirely an experiment um and and if it doesn't work then it's 500 words you know you haven't just thrown away a whole novel because it's just fundamentally broken sure um and and sometimes it's a great way to just kind of get your your brain going and and get some you know kind of limber you up it's almost like stretching you know before working out or something like that um every now and then we haven't done this in a while my writing group you know, if we didn't have any stories or we only had one story we finished early, um, we would all just sit and just write something together. Um, and it's, it's kind of a great, you know, and part of it's also teaching you speed, you know, and I also learned that at Clarion West, um, you know, writing really fast um, in a short period of time. You know, I had, I would maybe have two or three days probably to work on a, on a short story. And like I said, I was turning out like 13,000 word stories on occasion. So that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good word count. And yeah. Yeah, and I can still write first drafts pretty fast. I mean, they're generally they're generally bad, um, or at least they need <laughs> as they're <laughs> supposed they to a, be, right? Right. Yeah. 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 You know, or at least they need a lot of work. My first drafts are t- tend to be pretty sparse, um, so they're like a lot of action and and mostly a lot of dialogue, and then I have to kind of go in and 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 paint the scene. You know, write in the descriptions and write in the the um, the action and the the staging and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, but it's 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 great to keep up that pace, and on a good day. Um, of drafting, I could write you know a thousand words or more in about an hour, um, which you know is, for me is pretty fast. It, yeah, it, I think it, I think for anybody that that's yeah. a, that's a fairly decent word count. So yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. that it it helps as well. You know, if if you write, then you know that 
you know, with all the demands of life, you're working on a podcast, you have a family, you have a day job, all those things. Sometimes you only have an hour to write. Yeah. And you can't dither around, you know, thinking about writing. You know, you just got to make the most of that, that time. So something that, that I learned at Clarion West is also just like there is no perfect time. There's no perfect place to write. You know, I, if, if I have my preferences, I'm sitting in a coffee shop somewhere for three or four hour stretches at a time, you know, just, just writing. But more often than not, I'm sitting in a coffee shop for 45 minutes before I go to work in the morning and trying to get as much done as I can. Right. You know, or I'm sitting in the laundromat, you know, writing a blog post or something for the, for the next day. Um, you get it done wherever, wherever you have to on the train at jury duty, you know, the perfect time is now the perfect location is where you are. Right. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, I, I, I have more questions, but, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I watched as, as, as our timer, uh, wound <laughs> down and then shifted into a parallel dimension and disappeared. Uh, uh, so apparently we are out of time. Uh, but, uh, Eugene, thank you so much. This has been, uh, intriguing enlightening and, and a distinct pleasure. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. I'm sorry I talked so much. Oh, dude, that's why you're no, here, no. yo. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear me and Brian. We're we're here to listen to your stuff, and and your stuff is awesome. Brian, what did you take away from from this discussion with Eugene? Is anything? Did anything pop out at you? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things is just write and and write a lot and write fast and you know and and I think that that's I I. Sp- I personally, with my writing journey, I spend so much time thinking about what I'm doing that when I finally get around to doing it, it never comes out the way that I'm thinking about it anyway. Exactly. And I've already changed it mm-hmm. 500 times, you know? Yeah. And so I just need to, to sit down and write and then, you know, go back and rewrite. And I think that's that's something that every time that I hear it, it kind of reinvigorates me. So, it does. Yeah. It really does. And and I, I think I don't think any of us can not hear that enough and just let it be an affirmation uh, uh, to just, to, like you say, Brian, go write. Holy crap. Right. For me, it was, it was the, uh, uh, the, the reminder of, or, or maybe I guess the revelation of, of the, the tightness and swiftness of YA, uh, literature in terms of getting to the story and getting sure. into what's going on and, and letting the story, uh, uh, carry the, the, the weight of, of the descriptor and the backstory and the info dumpage and, and letting that fall aside and getting to the, getting to the meat. Cause that's what we all want. You know, there, there, there's, there are times when, when you want a nice languid poetic, let's describe ourselves in here. <laughs> uh, but, but, but in general, you know, when we're sitting down, we want, we want to read a really good story and you don't know yeah. that until you get into it. So right. that's, that's a cool affirmation for me. I, that's, that's what I'm taking from it. So friends, uh, thank you so much for tuning in as always. We, we deeply appreciate it. Uh, uh, if, if, if you got something out of, out of Eugene's, uh, uh, dialogue with us, um, pay it forward and spread the word, yo, uh, uh, let folks know about the round table, uh, go ahead and swing out to iTunes and drop us a review, uh, uh, or, or possibly, you know, leave a comment on the, on the post itself. So many of you have done that and we appreciate that. It lets us know not only you're out there and you're listening, uh, uh, but also that you're digging what we're doing and you have some great ideas and suggestions. We appreciate that. We're out on the Twitter sphere at writers podcast. You can friend us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash round table podcast. And, uh, uh, in general, just, just reach out, man. Cause we, we want to hear from you and, and so do other people. So, so bring it on now. Absolutely. Now in just a couple of days, we're going to have Eugene back. 
and and then the true awesomeness of the round table will manifest like a dark phoenix rising against the sunset where we will workshop an awesome tale and dig for literary gold oh yes i am so pumped (laughs) (laughs) uh but that's a couple of days from now so uh uh you know brian uh, it's been a while since folks have have received anything other than you know hydrate, which is what Ryan Stevenson's uh, uh, suggestion is. You know, <laughs> and, and and so I'm wondering, you know, what what do you, what do you suggest they do over these next I, couple of days? I say write long, write fast, but go right now. <laughs> oh, dude, awesome! I love it. Yes, and and for myself, dear friends, as always, I will remind you that you find what you're looking for. So don't waste time with meh or meh or whatever. Go go looking for the awesome. Look for the top shelf blue label goodness. And dear friends, you will find it. It is out there for you. So we will see you in just a few days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast, or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.